You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today. We have a couple of special guests sitting in with us to talk about their work on the new release film, Harriet, which chronicles the life history of the iconic Harriet Tubman and her harrowing work on the Underground Railway in the 1800s. Do you know what would happen if you got caught? They would torture you until you pointed them right to this office. You got lucky, Harriet. And there's nothing more you can do. Don't you tell me what I can't do. I made it this far on my own. God was watching, but my feet was my own. Running, bleeding, climbing, nearly drowned. Nothing to eat for days and days, man. I made it. So don't you tell me what I can't do. Tasked to make the authentic soundscape for this time period were supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Blake Lay, who has also worked on Into the Woods, The Wire, and was an Emmy winner for the sound of the HBO series Treme. Blake, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Also joining us is Skip Levesay. Skip has been on our show previously in episode 76. If you're not familiar with his work, you're probably in the wrong business. Skip is an Oscar winner, Golden Globe reel winner, CAS winner, who's worked on all-time classics like No Country for Old Men, Gravity, Do the Right thing casino and last year's tour de force roma welcome to the show skip thank you nice to be here i see that you guys have both worked together all the way back to 1991's barton fink how did you guys originally cross paths good question (laughs) we met over ramen at uh sapporo one we both used to go there and uh somehow we discovered that we also both did the same thing i think barton fink was the first movie that we shared a credit on but we knew each other before then i was here working on uh State of Grace was the first time we spent time together. In- Blake, Blake and uh, Dodie Doran had a very famous sound editing company in Los Angeles, and we both have this Los Angeles connection with um, sound editor Jerry Ross and mixer Doug, Doug Hemphill, and uh, there's a whole cast of characters out there that we separately and, and collectively uh, know and hang with over the years. And Blake's company, Sonic Kitchen, was like the the breakout young Turks, Blake and Doe. We did the sound on The Abyss, on the James Cameron film, The Abyss in 1988. That was uh, the Sonic Kitchen thing. And I had worked with, um, I kind of started out at Canon Films with the now legendary C-movie Schlockmeisters, the Israeli guys, uh, Menachem and Yoram and Jerry Ross. I knew Jerry from there. Jerry was there. Yeah. yeah. So how many films have you guys worked on together now, do you think? Hundreds. We did Itu Mama Tambien. Uh, Blake supervised and I mixed a version which got uh, improved beyond all recognition by Tom Fleischman uh, a little while later. That's how we met Alfonso. That's how I met Alfonso. Right. And I think um, actually we, we were helped, uh, helped along by Joel Cohen on that uh, introduction. I do think that um, Harriet was the first time we we sat next to each other at a console um, for a whole mix. For a long time, I didn't I didn't really want, like mixing. Um, I, I mean, I, I did a lot of pre-mixing and mixed small films where I could work in my own room. But I, for years, I didn't, I, I liked supervising. I liked being the person who could get up and leave the room. I, I, I'm not that good with sitting in a chair for eight hours, having clients look at the back of my neck and tell me what to do. Um, 
And I kind of just got over that eventually. I just couldn't deal anymore with doing all of the work, 98% of the work, and then handing it to someone else who would sit in the chair. So I just decided, okay, I'm only going to do sound design and sound work on movies now if I can also mix. Because I also do a lot of music work, supervising, and I work as a composer. So I can go back and forth. Let's talk about the film Harriet. I saw it in the theater over the weekend. There's a really interesting technique being used. Apparently, the real-life Harriet Tubman was injured as a child. Going into her adulthood, she would have what is described as spells. There's a visual difference between when it's a plot and when she's going into the spells. How did you guys tackle those sound-wise? Well, it's um, it's actually a motif that Casey Lemons, the director, uh, has used in really in all of her films. It's it's a it's a device that she's used to have dream sequences and people seeing the future, um, seeing things that aren't necessarily happening. That was probably the the biggest challenge from a sound design point of view was how to treat those sequences. And we tried a lot of different things. It's it's really. Um, more akin to scoring, really. Um, but it's you do, You still want what happens during those sequences to not just be score, because you you need the storytelling aspect to be there. It needs to feel different than just a slightly different piece of music. So we were um, experimenting with a lot of different ideas for a long time before there was any score. So with uh, bowing strings and air moving over different surfaces, uh, grass and metal and um, bird sounds, insect sounds, a lot of different things. And we ended up with a mixture of a, a bunch of different things, um, fire sounds, sort of elemental sounds, and um, just hit upon a combination that, that seemed to work. In the early part of the film, when she goes into her spells, there's a rumble, which I thought was thunder, maybe. But then in the last time she goes into a spell, there is a stampede. Is that stampede kind of, I was going to say being echoed, but it's prior. Is that what you used to make those sounds earlier on? Yeah, well, there is, you do see those running feet in the, in the climax of the film. There's, um, you, it's sort of revealed during those visions earlier in the film, you hear and see many slaves running um you don't know that's what it is the first several times you see it and then it's it's revealed so it pay that idea pays off at the end of the film when it's thousands of slaves being freed and running towards the water uh, but yeah the very first time she falls into one of those we called them visions uh, we do hear those rumbling feet running i don't remember if it's in the script or not but it was certainly in the edit uh, the visual idea of using those the slaves running feet and so we we followed that visual idea to, and illustrated it with sound. So how was the production dialogue in this? How was the dialogue uh, mix? Were you guys stuck with planes flying overhead in the production dialogue or anything like that? Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, there's hardly a place you can be on the planet where there aren't planes flying overhead at some uh, height, either closer or higher up. But we did have really good track. In general, we had a very good recording for every line in the movie. There were some a few exceptions, and there was a little bit of ADR done because of that, and there was ADR done for other reasons, of course, matching and performance issues. But I would say in general we had – it was good track. It wasn't like um, a super hyper clean or anything, and Blake and I have been wondering lately why uh, all of a sudden in, in the autumn of our careers we're starting to get really high-quality recordings. Uh, when we were – young and enthusiastic, we had the worst recordings imaginable. It would have been nice if we had the really good recordings when we were young and 
then we get the bad ones now and we could we would have learned how to deal with them by now but uh unfortunately i like it this way around because now we can just like relax and like <laughs> do less and leave yeah. work early and yeah go drinking instead of having to stay till midnight cleaning up tracks you know no doubt there's insects in this show there's a lot of exteriors with insects was that a tough thing to tackle? Were you adding more insects to cover things up, or how did you go about that? It's a two-parter. I mean, I try to filter away. Basically, uh, the, in, in America, most of the crickets are around 4K, but it changes with uh, temperature down into the 3,000 cycle range. But it is actually pretty narrow, so you can make a pretty good dent by using a little notch filter, and uh, you have to be careful not to ruin the phase relationship, which uh, filtering in that range will really hit hard. Just knock it down a bit and then do some nice crossfading between the pieces. Then you can completely solve the problem by adding a similar sweet background. That's a solution that we have, which I've never had it not work. It always works well enough. And the only time when it's a little bit challenging is when it's winter or it's, it's you know, not winter being shot for winter and you see snow, uh, but you hear crickets, it's like that is not. Uh, cool, <laughs> and then it's a it can be a problem. <laughs> also, Casey, the director, and and Wyatt Smith, the editor, they basically could never have enough insect sounds. So we were always adding more and more. They just their taste. Casey had you know been in the south shooting the film and was really um, quite taken with how loud the insects are, which is true that you know if you go out in a field in south carolina in the middle of the summer the insects are improbably loud it's quite surprising louder than the movie convention for sure, sure. so she was like oh, the, when we were there <laughs> shooting this the insects were so loud make them louder well that's a luxury because in my experience directors are always trying to minimize insects so that was something i noticed while watching the movie is that their prominent isn't the right word but they're there it feels real I would say they're prominent. I mean, not yeah. really the uh, the backgrounds. I mean, that's that's that, that's one thing I like about the track we ended up with. The way the movie sounds when you're all said and done is the insects and the birds too. Uh, uh, they're they're very full and very loud and very noticeable. And there's no there was none of that like um, lower the backgrounds. You know, some filmmakers they they don't like to hear the sounds of the environment that much. You're right that. They're saying lower the insects, just lower the lower the environmental sounds in general. And uh, this was a case where it wasn't like that. Filmmaker really liked the to to feel the presence of nature and the presence of the environments. It's nice to hear a film that has some volume to it, but it isn't all crash, boom, bang. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a fairly quiet film, but I bet by the actual meters, it's not actually that quiet. I've given in to the idea of trying to make a really widely dynamic mix and. There's a kind of a game that you can play where you have a very dynamic track and then gradually uh, people say, I can't hear that, you know, can you raise that? I can't hear what they're saying. And then uh, some people I know will actually go to, I can't hear that syllable. If I can't hear that syllable, we don't have a movie, you know. So you can only endure that kind of silliness for so long before you start making every syllable really loud. And I've sort of gradually given into that concept and during the process I, I go through a silly charade of making all the syllables and words you know fairly loud so everyone can hear everything and 
if we have time and patience, we can make it a little more dynamic, but most filmmakers won't complain. I'm thinking of the Coens, for instance. They're perfectly happy to hear every single syllable and phrase at a fairly loud level, even though it's not terribly natural. So left to your own devices, you you would, would be quite tolerant of losing the intelligibility of some of the dialogue in, to, uh, to have the overall feeling be more natural and more pleasing to the ear? Yeah, I, I like the idea of, of a movie being part documentary where, you know, an event is happening, whether it's a, a dreamed-up performance or something that's more searching for realism. Realism is about things that you don't catch every single word, and sometimes you hear incorrectly what's happening. And um, There is a kind of thing about theater in particular, but also about movies where they're written by writers and writers want to hear every single note. And um, I think sometimes that misses the, that makes it more like theater and less like cinema. And I like the idea. I mean, I'll never forget a, a movie I worked on where the picture editor was the composer also, and he was really uh, driven to dynamic range. And basically everything I did, he would say, oh, that's way too loud. Alfonso Cuaron is also really into dynamic range, so we would spend, I mean, a good third of my time was spent lowering stuff that I had made too loud. Mm. And I like the, the dynamic range is so um, exciting about cinema, where you can have things that are very quiet and people really have to strain to hear, and um, then things are really loud and they're pushed back in their seats. and. It's a part of the art process that um, you forego if you just make everything loud enough so that every single syllable is audible to the writers or to the studio. You know, studio people basically make scripts, and their thing is about words. It's not about cinema. And they're, they hire writers, and they make written pages. And to them... Really, uh, this is my experience, nothing is more important than what's written on the pages. And they want to hear every single syllable. So I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that that leads you in one direction, pulls you in one direction. And I think probably filmmakers and, and certainly artistic filmmakers like Quaron are, are feel the pull, I think, of some, making something more documentary. There's a good moment in Harriet that's kind of what you're saying. Right near the top, uh, her husband comes to her with a piece of paper and they start hugging and you're not sure exactly what's on the piece of paper and they're walking away and you get the impression that they're talking about it, but you're losing the intelligibility of what they're saying as they walk off into the distance in the shot and then it cuts to a spiritual being sung and then you find out like five minutes later what's on the paper. Like you have to wait for that payoff. Yeah, I think that's a, a nod from Casey to the idea of cinema. It's part of a bigger thing. It's not just what people say moment to moment. I, th I think about it often in terms of um, a tolerance for ambiguity. So I've, I've worked with David Simon for almost 20 years now on, on every project he's done. And I mean, he's someone, even though he's a writer who writes all the words, he's not at all interested in catering to the audience's comfort and discomfort with ambiguity because in 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 life and in art the things can have more than one meaning and if every single thing is explained to an audience 
Um, it, you know, I mean, it's 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 a question of taste, but I mean, certainly, big corporate entertainment is not about subjecting the audience to ambiguity. It's about making the audience feel very comfortable. They know what to expect. They know what they're going to hear. They know how to react to it when it happens. And other kinds of more artistic work and storytelling have a much greater tolerance for ambiguity. And I'm always interested in that. I'm interested in ambiguity and, and supporting that idea. And you don't have to handhold the audience every second of the way and make sure. So it's okay if, you know, I mean, working with David, I'm, I'm, I mix the music on all of his stuff. And it's, uh, there's a lot of times where he's like, it doesn't matter if we understand the dialogue in this scene. They're in a bar, they're yelling at each other, and by the end of the scene and by the end of the next stuff, you know you know what's going on. You don't have to hear every word. Let's have it feel real. It's two people in a bar trying to understand each other. So and it's not just bars, but all kinds of other noisy environments. And you know, so there are a lot of times where Yeah, you decide it's okay to not hear stuff. There's another aspect too, which is the film the studio executives who make the scripts are their idea is that we have to tell the audience everything that's happening. Look at they're writing words on a page. There's no imagery, there's no sound. They're using words to, to make the audience understand what's happening. There's absolutely no artistic contribution to that beyond the language itself. There's no, there's no cinema in the pages. The, the studios actually don't work with artistic cinematic filmmaking. That's not part of their day to day. To the degree that they can imagine it, it's there. If you look at it from the other side of the camera, the, the filmmakers live in an artistic cinematic world where people stand in front of the camera and get in their shot and say the words. It's an almost diametrically opposed um, proposition between the people who are in charge of making the movies and getting the money and the people they hire to do the work. It, do, it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't, it's not always important to hear every single thing. The number of times that I've been in meetings where we're working on a film and there's some issue that the studio executives have and somebody will start talking about a scene 37 that wasn't even shot. And, and, and they'll say, well, you know, in scene 37, well, that explains because, you know, his brother Bob had uh, was in a car accident. And we're like... That is not helping. We're trying to do a movie now. Scene 37 doesn't exist for all intents and purposes, you know. And it is really, it's a big problem with for executives to get over what existed in the script. That was then, and now we have a movie. And actually, they're not really connected anymore. I worked with one filmmaker. Um, there was one scene that I really liked. I really liked the actor, Christopher Lee. And I just really enjoyed what was happening. And gradually that scene got edited down and more and more. And finally, there was none of the language there. It was like 10 pages. And I said to the filmmaker, like, what's happening there? You know, are you, do you not like what happened? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, this was a really nice scene. And I particularly liked the way it was shot and the performances. And he said, you mean the, um, all the, the dialogue is gone? And I said, yeah. And he goes, Oh, we, you don't want to hear them say that stuff. That's all just junk. That's all just... He's explained to me, the script informs the actors. It helps inform the actors about what they're supposed to be doing. You don't need to hear the words. 
because 90% of what's happening is in their body language and their facial expression, their reactions to each other. So you can have far less of all that yapping, but it helps the actors inhabit the character if they say a whole bunch of stuff. It gives them something to bite on and to like hang on. And that helps their reactions and their physical relation to the other actors. That's all being stirred up by having these dialogues. And he's like, oh God, no, you don't want to hear them say all that stuff. That's all just a bunch of junk. Get that out of there. <laughs> it's so much nicer now. We just see them like together with Christian Bale, like looking at each other. And, and the very few lines that are there are infused with all this subtext and emotion because you see it on their faces and the way they're standing and looking at each other. And I'm like, okay, wow, shit. I didn't know any of that stuff. <laughs> are you kidding? That's the way it works? How much of that comes into the mix room when the studio executives come down to watch a playback? A lot. I mean, it's always <laughs> there in the room. For my part, as a mixer, I do what the filmmaker tells me to do. And I understand, I try to appreciate the different points of view because that helps me do my job. But whatever the filmmaker decides, I have to side with them no matter what I think. It's their movie. We are part of the filmmaker's process. We are not part of the studio process. Only the filmmaker is part of the studio process. It would be like if the people who manufactured the paint and the brushes came into the studio and tried to tell the painter whether they were doing a good job or not. Whether the paint is appropriate or not is totally up to the painter, not to the manufacturer in this case. I mean, that's a pretty coarse uh, corollary, but still, just the same. I still, I think, that you're, I think that's generous to describe studio executives as the manufacturers of the paint. I think they're, I think they're like the, the, uh, the profiteers who make money off of arms or something like that. Yeah, I've already retired, actually, so I can just say whatever I think about those morons who work for the studios and come in here and tell us what to try and tell us what to do. Okay. Have you ever found yourself in between the studio people and the filmmaker? Every minute that they're in the room. Just let them fight it out and wait for the filmmaker to give you the instruction? You have to. It's really up to them. It's not... You, our, our involvement is so... It's so important that we maintain our relationship with the filmmaker so that they can trust us to do what they ask in response to what they've been asked to by the studio. It's crucial that we act as their agent on on the soundtrack it's really really important even if you have a good idea or an opinion it, it's much better to express it to the filmmaker and not get not two sides blake you do you agree with what i just said oh totally okay, i absolutely good. agree yeah I, no i, I work for the filmmaker i mean i've 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 left projects if like if the director leaves a project i leave too i would you could not pay me enough money to service the studios ideas of what to do with the film if that's not what the filmmaker wanted not all the sound people feel that way some were a lot of people who are like whoever pays my paycheck is who they, they get to tell me what to do but um yeah speaking of directors is this your first time working with cassie uh, it's not my first time working with Casey. I've um, worked with her on her last film black nativity i was involved with the music and um i've known her for a for a number of years we've had mutual friends in common and we're neighbors in Harlem, and uh, she's so talented and has a really unique perspective, and it's great to see um, Harriet being well-received by audiences 
Uh, I hope she gets to make many, many more films. I second that, of course. Well, we'll end on that note. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Harriet's playing uh, all around right now, so everybody go out and take a chance to go see it while it's in the theaters, and you can hear those crickets loud and strong. And hear those visions. Of the piano notes. Yes, exactly. All right, cool. Well, this was great. Thank you, Tim. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 